Hi friends, just before we dive into today's episode, I want to ask a huge favor from you. Would you please consider being a supporter of the Why Catholic Podcast? There's four ways you can do this. First, you can become a patron and financially support this podcast. The basic level is $5 a month. To become a patron, go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Secondly, you can support this podcast by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Just go to etsy.com slash shop slash whycatholic. Third, you can also support Why Catholic by sharing episodes with your community. And lastly, you can support Why Catholic by inviting me to come and speak at your next parish event. For more information about that, please send me an email at whycatholic@substack.com. Thank you, friends, for your help. I couldn't do this without you. A few weeks ago, at the time of this recording, the Vatican published a declaration called Fiducia Supplicans, with the subtitle, The Pastoral Meaning of Blessings. What alerted me to the publication was that Reuters sent me a notification saying that Pope Francis permits priests to bless same-sex unions. I was like, whoa, wait, what? Since then, there have been no shortage of opinions about the document. More traditionally-minded clerics have confirmed that this document really offers nothing new in Catholic teaching. On the other hand, more progressive individuals like Father James Martin went as far as to pose for a photo op, blessing a gay couple holding hands, and told liberal news outlets that Fiducia Supplicans was a revolutionary shift in Catholic teaching. On January 4th, in light of all the confusion and pushback, the Vatican released a second document clarifying fiducia supplicans. However, it seemed to create even more confusion than clarity. What are we supposed to make of this declaration? Hi, this is Justin Hibbert. You're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 73, we've been focusing on Catholic ethos. Ethos means the characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs. Each of these episodes focuses on a particular idea that you often hear in Catholicism, but may not get explained as often as it should. Now, if you're following my podcast in real time, you may have noticed that I took a break for a few weeks, which is pretty unusual. There's a couple of reasons. First, it was the Christmas holidays, and we had a revolving door of guests. However, the other reason is because I've written and rewritten this episode a handful of times. I had an episode prepared about my take on Fiducia Supplicans, but then I got to thinking, you know, there's plenty of takes already on this document, a lot of people doing their own Pope-splaining, and a whole spectrum of reactions. I think the best thing I can do is to use fiducia supplicans as an opportunity to talk about the Catholic ethos of the unity of life. Let me begin by defining what unity of life means, and let me do that by telling you a story. My middle school years were not the best years of my life. I attended a Christian school, but I was rather rebellious and had no qualms about using profane and vulgar language. However, I also had an uncanny ability to make people think I was a mature Christian. I remember I had spoken one day in front of the class about my Christian faith, likely talking about how I walked with God. A classmate called me out later that day and said that I had a bad testimony. She said, you say you're a Christian, but then you say the most awful things. She was right. I lived a duplicitous life. I could act like a Christian when I needed to, but it was short-lived. I was a completely different person when I left the religious setting. The summer after middle school, I attended a Christian camp, as had been my norm for a number of summers. I really wanted to get serious about my faith. I hated being a hypocrite. I despised my duplicity. 
A series of events happened that week, and I surrendered my life to Jesus. I was thoroughly changed. I was so afraid that I was going to go back home and return to my potty mouth manners. But that's not what happened. I wanted my personal life to look more like my life of faith. In fact, I had subscribed to this music video service where they sent me a VHS every month of heavy metal music videos. It was not wholesome, to say the least. I remember writing a letter asking them to cancel my subscription and explaining that I had given my life to Jesus and said, I'd love to talk to you about giving your life to Jesus as well. Now, I was far from perfect, but the night and day difference was this. Instead of being content living a duplicitous life, I was striving to have my personal life and my quote-unquote church life become the same. I was no longer satisfied with living one way in a religious setting and a completely opposite way in other settings. There were many times I messed up, many sins I continued committing, but whereas before I didn't care, before I was letting those sins define me, After my conversion, I was really striving to conform my life to be more like Jesus. In Catholicism, this ethos is called the unity of life. One of my turnoffs to Catholicism was how much I saw the lack of unity of life in Catholics. When I worked at a Catholic school, one teacher bragged to me about his favorite strip clubs, unsolicited I might add, and then he'd piously participate in Mass and receive the Eucharist. Disunity of life turns people off to Christianity. It happens in every flavor and denomination. Brennan Manning famously said, quote, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. End quote. None of us are perfect. But those who pursue a unity of life participate in the life of the church and really try to immerse themselves with that holiness when they leave the church. Juxtapose that with those who live two distinctly separate lives. They spend one hour a week at most engaging in Christianity and the rest of the time living however they see fit as though their faith has no bearing on their life. It is challenging We live in a world that has a set of standards and rules, and those standards aren't always God's standards. Isaiah 55, 8 reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. What may seem like conventional wisdom to us may not be conventional wisdom to God. Certainly those who take religious vows understand this. I remember when my friend sent me a card inviting me to attend his solemn vows as a Dominican. He said, I believe God wants me to be poor, chaste, and obedient. The world tells us to accumulate wealth, to sleep around as long as we practice safe sex, and to do what makes you feel good, poor, chaste, and obedient, and purposefully abstaining from particular pleasures at certain times of the year. To the secular world, this is unheard of. We are constantly being bombarded by the world's standards. How many television shows glorify sin? It's easy to forget what sin is because the world justifies it, it normalizes it, promotes it, celebrates it, and labels people by it. So not only are you intolerant if you call out a sinful behavior or lifestyle that the world accepts, but you're judgmental and you have some sort of phobia because you're rejecting someone's core identity because the world has entrapped them in sin by labeling them by their sin. Whereas a Christian might say, I struggle with some sort of lust, maybe same-sex attraction, maybe lusting for the opposite sex. The world says, there is no need to struggle. You should own it. 
And for example, when it comes to same-sex attraction, the world says, you're gay, and we're going to celebrate you. The whole transgender movement is similar. Instead of saying, hey, it seems like you may have some sort of gender dysphoria, and it's important to help get you that help that you need, secular society has decided it's better to let males pretend they can be females and females pretend that they can be males, and not only affirm their decision, but insist parents pay for permanent life-altering measures like hormone therapy and physical mutilation. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we all sin. And I think while we tend to single out issues like homosexuality, it's really heterosexuals that commit the majority of adultery in the church, whether that's sex outside of marriage, pornography, or divorce and remarriage. We all have our personal struggles in life. My struggle with sin may be different than your struggles with sin, but we all struggle with sin. The problem is when we stop struggling. The problem is when we give into our sin and it becomes really problematic when we let our sin define us. Satan, the prince of this world, is a very sly devil. He knows that if he can get you to define your life by your sin, then you will stop struggling. And when you stop struggling, you stop converting. You stop crucifying your flesh. You stop your resolve to become more like Jesus. You cease to have this pursuit for the unity of life. What often happens when we stop struggling with sin is we do this self-preservation thing where we stop owning up to our sins and place the blame on someone else. For example, I was talking to a friend whose girlfriend had cheated on him. When he talked to her about it and offered to work things out, she blamed him for all sorts of things as a way of justifying her own behavior. I'll share that at home, we've been working with one of our children on a specific matter that comes up every so often. In the past, when we've confronted our child and talked about it, this child has been contrite. But more recently, this child has started to justify their disobedience by deflecting the blame on one of us. Uh, like, I did this because you made me do X, Y, and Z. I see so much of this in today's society. Instead of owning up to one's moral failures, they say, you're being intolerant and closed-minded. This brings me to the Vatican's declaration, Fiducia Supplicans, which was released on December 18th, which I've linked to in the show notes. I've also linked to the follow-up document, which was published on January 4th. On one hand, I think it's important to always give the Holy Father the benefit of the doubt. By that, I don't mean that we have to agree with everything he says, but what I mean is that when he speaks, we need to try to understand where he's coming from rather than paint him in the worst light and jump to conspiracy theories. With that in mind, one overarching belief that Pope Francis seems to have in my assessment is that he sees the church as a hospital. In fact, he famously said, quote, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, end quote. He often uses that analogy of a hospital, and so he seems much more comfortable inviting sinners into the hospital to receive treatment rather than being a strict moralist that says this is what the church stands for and stands against, and risking people never coming into the church to receive the healing through the sacraments. I want to give two examples of how he's applied this teaching. The first has to do with a couple of American politicians who claim to be devout Catholics, but are actively trying to push for federal legalization of abortion. I'm speaking specifically about California Representative Nancy Pelosi and President Joe Biden. 
On May 20th, 2022, Archbishop Salvatore Corday Leon of the Archdiocese of San Francisco officially barred Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion in his jurisdiction after she continued creating scandal by publicly pushing for abortion despite multiple attempts to confront her privately and get her to recant. On the other hand, around the same time, Pope Francis met with President Joe Biden, who was also pushing for federal abortion regulation in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Pope Francis encouraged President Biden to continue receiving communion. Both were trying to correct and reform the immoral believer, I believe, but Archbishop Cordelione was doing so through excommunication, while Pope Francis was hoping to promote change through being merciful and giving access to the supernatural power of the sacraments. The second example I want to give is a Hulu documentary called The Pope Answers, in which Pope Francis sits down and speaks with young adults from different Spanish-speaking countries with a variety of lifestyles and backgrounds. Including the group is one that had an abortion, there were gay and lesbian individuals, a transgender individual, a young man who was abused by a priest, a feminist, and even a former nun who has since left the convent and become a lesbian. And then there was a pious and faithful Catholic young woman. In the documentary, these individuals have a general tone of accusing the church of ostracizing them, and Pope Francis seems to go out of his way to encourage them that the church is theirs and to never feel like they can't be a part of the church. In fact, to me, it almost seemed at times that the young pious lady felt the need to defend the church and its moral teachings more so than Pope Francis. I believe that Pope Francis sees the church as God's instrument to dispense grace, particularly through the sacraments as well as sacramentals like blessings. And since we believe that the sacraments truly do what they say they do, then as he sees it, in my assessment at least, the church should try to do everything to bring people into its community and give them access to God's grace. This is the tone of the Vatican's Declaration Fiducius Supplicans. The document primarily focuses on the nature of blessings and presents this beautiful vision of blessings not as an affirmation per se, but more of a response to a cry for help. It urges pastors that when someone asks for a blessing, to see it as an opportunity to confer grace onto them, because that blessing may be life-changing. You know, I can relate to this. When I worked at a Catholic school during my anti-Catholic days, whenever we were required to attend Mass, I would always refuse to go through the communion line and receive a blessing. Then one day, due to logistical reasons, I went forward so as not to completely disrupt the line. The chaplain, Father Tom Ryan, who just passed away the other day, said my name and gave me the most touching blessing. After that, I always cherished the opportunity to go forward and receive a blessing, and I look back on that event as one of those breadcrumbs that led me home to the Catholic Church. So on one hand, I definitely understand what the Vatican is saying and the supernatural power of blessings. On the other hand, I think this document sort of treats priests as blessing vending machines rather than as pastors who walk with individuals towards a unity of life. Yes, someone asking for a blessing can be a cry for help, but in some cases, it can be someone who wants the church to affirm their sinful lifestyle. One may go to a vending machine and buy a Coke because they're parched. One may do it because they have a soda addiction. In one case, giving a person a Coke is, may be helpful. In another case, it may be negatively contributing to their health. I think the Vatican's declaration is well-intentioned. But as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. 
And I think we always have to be mindful that Satan would love to do nothing more than destroy the church, and I don't think he particularly cares in which way he does it. So on one hand, he wins by painting the church as this institution that affirms all people and lifestyles without the burden of conversion. Let's make the church more like Oprah and less like Jesus. Live your truth. On the other hand, Satan also wins by painting the church as this prudish, self-righteous, judgmental institution which closes its doors and ostracizes the people who need it most. Frankly, I think Fiducia Supplicans creates more confusion than clarity, and I think the follow-up document meant to bring clarity makes it even more confusing. For example, I'm not sure how one cannot bless irregular unions, but bless a couple when it's the irregular relationship of the couple that defines that irregular union. It seems like the Vatican is talking out of both sides of its mouth. I think we always need to strive to be like Jesus, who said to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. A pastor needs to dispense both mercy and correction. A pastor is a shepherd, and shepherds guide their sheep towards green pastures and streams of water, and a good shepherd keeps its sheep from danger. I think oftentimes we can see the world with rose-colored lenses. As much as Pope Francis likes to use the analogy of the church being a hospital, there are lots of people who don't think they are sick. And I'm not just talking about people that are in irregular relationships. There are lots of people who want the church to affirm and bless them, but have no desire to live a unity of life. And I think we always need to remember that the purpose of the sacraments is conversion, not just a one-time conversion, but a perpetual lifelong conversion. As we talked about over and over, the word sacrament has two components. There's the mysterious injection of grace that God does, and there's the sacred oath that we make. I know there's lots of people concerned about some of Pope Francis's more recent actions, this being just the latest. Here's what I'm going to say. Don't let it take away your focus from living out a unity of life and helping others do the same. The Catholic Church is the world's oldest and largest institution. There are lots of people who have come and gone and lots of documents that have been written in its long history. Who do we remember? We remember the saints who lived a unity of life, who wrestled with sin and sought to bring their earthly existence in line with their heavenly goal. We call them saints. They are the legacy of the church. Don't let anyone, man or Satan, distract you from your mission to be a saint. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.